I was scheduled to preach this Sunday, and I asked Charlie what he'd like me to preach about, and he asked me to preach on this topic because the Lord blessed my seminary labors this spring when Presbyterian and Reformed uh, Publishing chose to publish my seminary thesis that I wrote while I was in seminary. I wrote my thesis to wrestle with what Covenant Theological Seminary professor Dan Doriani has called one of the signal ethical issues for the church and our nation in this day. And that is the US treatment of detainees during the years 2002 to 2006. I came to struggle with this issue in an unexpected way. In the spring of 2008, before I went to seminary, I was teaching a course on prosecuting war crimes and war criminals at the US Army JAG School in Charlottesville, Virginia. And I invited a former colleague who was prosecuting at the military commissions to come and speak to my class. We'd been studying the great war, tri uh, war tribunals, international tribunals of the past, like that at Nuremberg, and I thought a good way to bring it up to the present would be to bring in one of the prosecutors uh, from the military commissions to speak. I knew Marine Lieutenant Colonel Stu Couch as a prosecutor's prosecutor who had never served in a criminal defense job in his life and never saw an issue from a defendant's point of view. Before becoming a lawyer, Couch had been a Marine pilot. And after 9-11, Couch found out that one of his former squadron mates, Michael Horrocks, call sign Rocks, had been one of the pilots on American Airlines Flight 175 that hit the South Tower of the World Trade Center. So Couch jumped at the opportunity when he was asked whether he wanted to be one of the prosecutors at the military commissions. And he was put in charge of prosecuting the September 11th suspects, Muhammad Ud Salahi and Muhammad al Qatani. And he kept a picture of Rox's widow and his children on his desk to remind him of the importance and the virtue of his cause. So I expected Couch to come and speak to my students about bringing justice to murderers and terrorists. Instead, I was shocked when Couch stood in front of my class of military lawyers and explained how he had agonizingly come to the hardest decision in his long career to walk into his boss's office and to refuse to prosecute Slahi and Al-Qahtani because of not just his legal objections, but his moral objections to the treatment that had obtained their confessions. Couch started to get his first doubts during a visit, his first visit to the Guantanamo Bay prison. While entering a room from which he was going to watch a detainee interrogation, he heard loud heavy metal music blaring from another interrogation room nearby. And when Lieutenant Colonel Couch went down the hall to tell the personnel to knock it off and turn the music down, he saw a detainee shackled to the floor in a painful position in a dark room with a strobe light flashing in his face. And immediately, two civilians stepped into the doorway, 
to block this lieutenant colonel of Marines from coming in. Couch was shocked by the strobe light, the heavy metal music, and the stress positions because it reminded him of his experience as a Marine pilot when he was sent to SEER training, where US pilots experience a taste, a taste of the torture that America's enemies during the Korean War and the Vietnam War used to interrogate American soldiers. Couch said, I started to have some serious misgivings about what was going on. And he started to dig into the interrogations of the people he was prosecuting and determined in regards to Al Slahi, what has come to be confirmed by the US Senate Armed Services Committee, that the interrogation plan for Slahi approved by Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld authorized interrogating him while chained to the floor in positions intended to cause stress and pain. It also approved dehumanizing him with dog collars, dog leashes, and orders to do pet tricks, and what I will carefully label as sexual humiliation. Lieutenant Colonel Couch collected numerous reports of interrogators in Afghanistan slapping and hitting detainees, and in one example, suspending a detainee by his arms while his feet dangled in the air and soldiers beat him. Subsequent investigations by the US Army, such as the Taguba Report, have established many more such reports in the public record. One example included an, inv an investigator striking a detainee's broken leg until he would curse Islam and thank Jesus that he was alive. But the interrogation of Al-Qahtani has become one of the most publicly documented cases. The Rumsfeld-approved interrogation plan for Al-Qahtani resulted in weeks of sleep deprivation, as well exposure to extreme cold for long periods of interrogation. This resulted in Al-Qahtani being hospitalized twice for life-threatening bradycardia, a condition in which his heart rate dropped to almost 35 beats per minute. It also resulted in a mental state in which he was observed crouching in the corner of his cell and talking to non-existent voices that he was hearing in the room. Couch's refusal to prosecute Al-Qahtani came to be vindicated several years later when President Bush's own appointee to head the military commissions stopped Al-Qahtani's case from going to trial because in the words of President Bush's appointee to Bob Woodward, his treatment, quote, his treatment met the legal definition of torture. So back in my classroom at the Army JAG school, Couch told my class of military government lawyers that he ultimately found the courage to refuse to prosecute these men, these terrorists, when he determined that the way that the US had obtained their confessions violated the human dignity that every person has because they bear and carry the image of God in them. And that challenged me. Because I like to think that I look at every issue in life through a biblical worldview. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, Paul writes that Christians should glorify God in eating, drinking, or whatever activity 
that we are involved in. And for Christian soldiers, sailors, Marines, and airmen, that should include being able to wage war to the glory of God in defense of our neighbors, which implies that when Christians engage in righteous warfare, they should not employ means of warfare that fall short of the glory of God, or in more simple terms, fall into sin. So I wrote my thesis to explore scripture and to find out what are the limits of righteous warfare and determine where they lie. The discussion that I've chosen to talk about this morning comes from chapter four of this book. And the sermon text I am preaching from is Genesis chapter one, verses 26 through 28. Please give your ear to the words of God recorded in the word of God in the book of Genesis. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. Here ends the reading of God's word. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, you have created men and women in your image. And you have given us your son, Jesus Christ, who bore the perfect, uncorrupted image of God and man because he was both God and man. Give us your eyes to see the image of God in our fellow men and women. And give us wise and loving hearts that recognize how we should treat them. We pray in the name of Christ, the firstborn of all creation. Amen. This morning's text is taken from the Genesis account of where God created our first parents, Adam and Eve. And in the passage, God breaks from the pattern that he had been creating by command by choosing to first deliberate before creating Adam and Eve. His pattern had been, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and God made an expanse. Let there be waters under the heavens, and so it was. Over and over again, God followed this pattern of let there be and there was, until he paused before his last creation of men and women. And he paused to speak in consultation with presumably the Son and the Spirit, for he says, let us make man in our, plural, image, after our likeness. Because unlike all the other animals that God created on the sixth day, God chooses to make men and women different in that they bear the image of God as his vice regents over the rest of his creation with the capacity to speak and be heard, to create language and music and art and knowledge and to love and to reason. Adam and Eve were created 
without sin, with perfect free will. They were truly free to choose obedience or disobedience. And as we know, they chose sin. And their fall had great implications for the image of God that they bore and that we continue to bear today. The Reformation theologian John Calvin believed that mankind's fall into sin brought great, quote, corruption and degradation to the image of God in humans, corrupting man's uncorrupted nature, leaving him with a depraved nature that was prone to sin, prone to choose sin each and every time. For as Romans 3.10 says, no one does righteous, no, not one. However, Calvin believed that the image of God was not totally defaced or destroyed in us or altogether extinguished. And he found evidence for this in Genesis chapter 9, where God speaks to Noah. After sending the flood, in which God essentially hit Control-All-Delete on the world and decided to reboot it, God repeats the same creation language that he used in Genesis 1, saying in verse 1, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But in verse 5, God adds to this creation account, this recreation account, the ethical implication of men and women bearing God's image. He says, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So long before God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, he gave Noah a law against murder. He essentially says, you may kill animals, but you may not murder men and women because they are special. They bear my image. Then Jesus Christ came and further unfolded the implications of how we are to treat our fellow image bearers. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught this, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Essentially, we are to see the dignity of all people as God's image bearers, whether they are acting like it or not. Jesus here is starting to explain to us the law of love. Last week, we read the account of the Good Samaritan in which Jesus and the smarty pants lawyer agreed that half the moral law could be summarized as love your neighbor as yourself. 
And to show us how broad the definition of neighbor was, Jesus illustrated the parable by using the ethnic enemies of the Samaritan and the Jew. But Jesus made this definition even more clear in the Sermon on the Mount when he said this, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your, enem- you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The great just war theologian of the 20th century, Paul Ramsey, looked at the ethical implications of Jesus' teaching on neighbor love and summarized it as the twin-born justification and limitation on warfare. The justification for warfare is this, The Christian's love of neighbor compels the Christian to go to war and to fight sacrificially, to defend their neighbors against aggression and oppression and injustice. In Romans chapter 10, God delegated the sword to the state to bring about his wrath, God's wrath on wrongdoers. Not just individuals who burglarize our home, as John Calvin writes about, but wrongdoing nations that would burglarize our nation and plunder our communities. But the state is not a person. A state cannot bear the sword unless Christians wield it for us. And the church has argued for centuries that Christians are showing the love of Christ for their neighbors when they go into the military and take up that sword to fight for their neighbors. But the law of love is also a limitation on the sword, surrounding non-combatants with protections and immunity from intentional harm. Ramsey wrote this, to summarize the theory of just or civilized war, civilized conduct in war, as this was developed within Christendom, love for neighbors threatened by violence, by aggression, or tyranny, provided grounds for the admitting the legitimacy of the use of military force. Love for neighbors at the same time required that such force should be limited. And he wrote this, the same considerations which justify killing the bearer of hostile force by the same stroke prohibit non-combatants from ever being directly attacked with deliberate intent. And Ramsey's definition of non-combatant included the traditional just war categories that the law of war came to adopt in the Geneva Conventions. Non-combatants being the civilized population, soldiers and sailors who are sick and wounded on the battlefield as well as those who've been shipwrecked, and those soldiers and sailors who have been made prisoners of war, as well as members of like unprivileged belligerents and members of non-state militias who are captured on the battlefield and made detainees. The protection of POWs and detainees in the Geneva Conventions from abuse had been a hallmark of US law and military doctrine for centuries. Why? Because it had been part of Christian theology for centuries. 
Why had it been such a strong tradition? Because the abuse of prisoners was seen as a violation of the image of God in man. Dietrich Bonhoeffer captured the essence of this principle while writing in Germany during World War II. He wrote that the use of another person's body to obtain some desired admission or statement is a misuse of the human body that God created. He wrote this, in such cases the body is misused and therefore dishonored exclusively as a means to the achievement of another man's purpose, whether it be for the satisfaction of his lust for power or for the sake of acquiring some particular information, or our word today would be intelligence. The innocent body's sensitiveness to pain is cruelly exploited. I have come to the conviction that the use of pain for interrogational purposes, such as the assaults, the stress positions, and the waterboarding, violate the imago Dei, violate the image of God in a person's physical body because the interrogator's will invades the integrity of the detainee's body in the form of pain to turn the body against the spirit. The pain invades as a foreign presence, expressing somebody else's will from the outside on the inside. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this, the human body must never become a thing, an object, such as might fall under the unrestricted power of another man and be used by him solely as a means to his own ends. The living human body is always the man himself. Rape, that's the traditional form that we would now include as one of the crimes under the heading of sexual assault. Rape, exploitation, torture, and arbitrary confinement of the human body are serious violations of the right which is given with the creation of man. So for many years, we had this principle that prisoners and detainees should not be abused. So what is it that changed in our laws? What is it that changed in our military doctrine? And sadly, what is it that changed in some of our theologies that allowed for the waterboarding and the assaults and the sexual humiliation of detainees? Well, September 11th was the turning point. America rightfully felt very threatened after the terrible terrorist attacks of September 11th that killed almost 3,000 people. America had not been attacked on its own land since Pearl Harbor. And the sudden loss of life, civilian lives, left us outraged and bracing for what we expected would be many more such attacks in the near future. And in December 2002, the head of the CIA Counterterrorist Center, Kofor Black, testified in front of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees and said this, all I want to say is that there was a before 9-11 and an after 9-11. And after 9-11, the gloves came off, close quote. 
This phrase about the gloves coming off was one that we heard a lot in the media and was used by many people in the government to justify President Bush's decision that the Geneva Conventions would provide no protections for those detainees that were a Taliban and Al-Qaeda detainees. And what we saw happen next is what happens when law is removed and leaves people in a lawless vacuum. John Calvin in his Institutes of the Christian Religion taught that there are three uses for the law. And the second use is to restrain our evil and our misconduct. President Bush's decision to remove the only law that protected detainees effectively put them into a legal vacuum while they were at their most vulnerable point that any human being could be, captured and bound in the hands of their enemies. And when President Bush removed this law, it was easier for persons in the government to approve the use of pain and these other methods and to create the conditions that drove Al-Qahtani to the brink of madness and even death. It was equally foreseeable that the approval of these techniques would have a waterfall effect, leading to the abuse of detainees, like the pictures that we saw come out of Abu Ghraib, of naked detainees stacked like cords of wood. The question for many Christians serving in the military and the government became was whether their theology or biblical convictions could fill the void when the law has been removed. For Lieutenant Colonel Couch, his theology was strong enough, but for others, it wasn't. Specialist Charles A. Grainer, who was one of the several soldiers court-martialed for the mistreatment of detainees at Abu Ghraib, he showed a digital picture of naked detainees and said to a friend, the Christian in me says it's wrong but the military policeman in him enjoyed it. Grainer knew enough to determine that the Bible prohibited Christians from engaging in abuse of other humans, but he enjoyed the control and the domination of another human being. Several lawyers in the Bush administration argued that detainees didn't deserve the protections of the law of war because they hadn't observed the law of war, and in fact, they hadn't. These terrorists had fought in civilian clothes, cloaking themselves in the protection of the civilian population as they attacked military targets as well as civilian targets. They argued that they shouldn't get the benefits of laws that they weren't going to give to us. But those lawyers in the Bush administration failed to recognize that the laws of war are not given based upon the honor and dishonor of our enemies. They're given for the, because of the potential for dishonor in us, their captors, since we are all fallen people who are prone to choose sin. Our Lord knew this about our nature. And as far back as the book of the covenant in the book of Exodus, God showed his compassion for defending the weakest in society prohibiting the oppression of widows, orphans, and aliens or foreigners. Dr. Miles Van Pelt, 
of Westminster Theological Seminary, has written, there is not a section of the Old Testament that does not account in some way for God's care for the poor, needy, hungry, or oppressed. And when Jesus came, he continued to call upon us not to oppress the weak. And in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells us that judgment day itself will turn on how we treated the weak. He taught this. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will say, will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them and us. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. And as I've come to wrestle with this passage over the last couple of years, I've come to greater and greater conviction that Jesus puts himself in the shoes of the victims in our society. And that's hard for me to do. That's hard for me and it's hard for us because it is not in our sinful nature to love others, especially those who are weak and those who are unsympathetic to us. But Christ gives us the hope and Christ gives us the strength to love others as we would love ourselves when we put our faith in Jesus Christ and we come into union with him. He starts to transform our hearts into his heart and our image into his image. And he is the perfect image of God. We read these verses in last week about Christ in Colossians chapter one, which says that he is the image Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And he is slowly changing his people to be like him, if we are in him. Me, 
I can testify that my Christian journey began with a hard heart that was very self-centered and self-loving. But through trials in which he has humbled me, but more so through the reading of his word where he reveals his heart to mine, I have grown in my capacity to see others with compassion and mercy, those that it was not my natural flesh's tendency to love. And I have to admit that it has been very, very hard to watch the news these last 10 days because I have heard a candidate for the highest political office in our land talk about touching, sexually touching other women without their consent or permission, which is the textbook definition of sexual assault. And I have heard women have to publicly talk about the pain and the shock and the horror of having been sexually assaulted, and I have grieved for their pain. I grieve because sexual assault is not just a sin against a person, it is a sin also against the community that surrounds that person, the friends, the family, the church, the spouse, who will try to help that victim heal. And it's also a sin against God. My RTS professor, Justin Holcomb, calls sexual assault a cosmic affront to the creator because it violates his most sacred creation, men and women created in his image. And he created sex as an act of intimacy inside of marriage in which spouses love and serve each other. But sexual assault is a distortion and it's a mockery of sex where one person hurts the other out of love of self by misusing the victim's body for self-gratification. I want to say that scripture is clear. God hates sexual assault and God loves victims of sexual assault. But the beautiful message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that there is no victim that is beyond healing. When victims, male and female, bring their injustices, bring their injuries, physical, emotional, or psychological, they may find healing in our Savior who knows the shame of being victimized, who died hanging naked on a cross for all the world to look at. The good news of the gospel is also for those who have committed sexual assault, that their sin is not unforgivable for those who bring it to him seeking forgiveness, they will find it. Returning to our war against terrorism, let me please close with this. It is my prayer that Christians will increasingly take a biblical worldview 
of national security issues. Trusting in our Lord and being righteous, a righteous people, as God calls upon us to be, saying, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And let me close with this illustration. God's word gives us the example of two biblical kings as paradigms that we may choose to follow. Both kings faced enemies who possessed overwhelming power to destroy their kingdoms. One king chose to resist righteously, and the Lord delivered him. The other king chose to resist using sinful means, in which led to the Lord's discipline. The negative paradigm is King Ahaz of Israel. The prophet Isaiah challenged King Ahaz not to fear his enemies, but to trust in the Lord to deliver Israel. But Ahaz replied that he didn't want to put the Lord to the test. And so he made an alliance, a political alliance, with the pagan king Tiglath-Pilesar and the ungodly Assyrian Empire. And Assyria did deliver Israel from its enemy, but subjugated Israel. And in the process, set in motion a relationship that ended in the destruction of Israel as a kingdom and the exile of her people to other lands. The good paradigm, the good example, is King Hezekiah. Sennacherib and the Assyrians marched into the kingdom of Judah and besieged Jerusalem, trapping King Hezekiah inside. King Hezekiah refused to surrender or to seek an unholy political solution. Instead, he prayed, trusting the Lord to deliver Judah. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 184,000 Assyrians in the camp while they were sleeping. And Sennacherib had to depart and return to Nineveh where he was killed by his own sons while worshiping his own God. Now, I don't think Christians should trust in the Lord and wait for some angel without doing anything. Hezekiah did take action. He prepared Judah to defend itself during a long siege. What my hope is, is that Christians will avoid making unholy alliances to preserve its peace and liberty. That Christians should avoid sinful methods of warfare that violate the image of God and our neighbors. And take righteous action to fight wars against terrorism, trusting the Lord to make our methods effective. But yes, yes, trusting the Lord's providence and his mercy, that the Lord will thwart our enemies' plots, such as when he did terrorist Richard Reed's failed shoe bombing of American Airlines Flight 63 in 2001, or Omar Farouk's the failed underwear bomber of Northwest Airlines Flight 253 in 2009, or Faisal Shazad's failed car bombing of Times Square in 2010. Our God has been our help in ages past. Let us put our trust 
in him to be our help today and tomorrow. Please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would have mercy on your people, your people made in your image, and make us more like you. Be our help today. For your church and our nation are in great need of help, that only you and your will can deliver us. Deliver us, we pray in your name. Amen.